listeners to the Peds Ortho Podcast, November edition. Uh, this is Julia Sanders at Children's Hospital Colorado, and we'll let our other co-hosts say hello. Hey, this is Josh Holt from University of Iowa. And this is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. This is Carter Coleman from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. I apologize in advance for my raspy horse voice. I've got whatever the latest version of RSV is or some kind of daycare crud for my kids. And we are super lucky today to have a guest author with us, Dr. Dustin Greenhill. He is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon that works in at uh, St. Luke's in Pennsylvania. And he has a really great general peds ortho practice and also takes adult trauma calls. So I think he's got a fun uh, perspective to share with us. And I have to give a little shout out to the fellowship year of 2017-2018 because uh, we we are all feel very strongly about that in our co-host group. And we're happy to have Dustin with us from way back when. So thanks, Dustin, for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be with my co-fellow class. Yes. Awesome. Seems like just yesterday, doesn't it? <laughs> Back when uh, people actually interviewed in person. Right. <laughs> the olden days. We, we wouldn't know you if it was virtual. It was COVID, yeah, that's, yeah. True. that's true. Yeah. Back when you had to pay to interview. Right. <laughs> Thousands of dollars, actually. <laughs> yeah. And before we move on, let me just say real quickly, thank you to this month's sponsor, OrthoFix. We'll be hearing a little bit more about their ring fixator system, the True Lock system. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Dr. David Padeswa from TSRH about it. So we're going to talk about an article that uh, Dustin and his co-authors wrote about the vascular safe zone during percutaneous pinning of the distal femur. Um, so Dustin, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what spurred you to write this article and then um can you give us like the cliff notes version of how to visualize this? Cause I think this is one of the ones that we'll, we'll probably encourage our listeners to look up so that they can look at the cool pictures you have. <laughs> um, but we'd love to have a couple one-liners on how you would explain this. Yeah. So I really like this article because it is easy to interpret and practical. I remember in fellowship when we were pinning distal femur physeal fractures, uh, you could go retrograde, you could go integrade, you could leave pins distal, you could leave pins proximal, you could bury them. People argued there was one paper by Murgai that said the risk of septic arthritis with retrograde pins was low, so that's easier, and, and you can avoid the vessels in the medial distal femur and the thigh. And I thought, well, it's low, but it's not zero. And some attending said, if you've had one patient with septic arthritis that you could have avoided, it doesn't matter how low it is. So I'd ask, how do I know I'm avoiding the vessels? People said, you just do. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, obviously we're on this call because we're evidence-based people, and I wanted some evidence, and I couldn't find it. So that, that's why we did this project. I learned a ton of something that's pretty obvious once you look at hundreds of MRIs, that the vessel isn't as close as I thought. And I wrote the paper because I wanted to know for sure that we were missing it. So the cliff notes is that we looked at patients anywhere between zero and 16 years old. We excluded abnormal MRIs. So we looked at normal MRIs and then we excluded abnormal positioning. So we looked at 
MRIs of knees that would be positioned the way we position them in the OR, basically. Uh, and we found that if you take the width of the physis and you flip it vertically and you go two physial widths above the medial femoral condyle and you're doing a lateral to medial pin, your pin should be out of the thigh before that artery comes medial to the femur. So you should completely miss it. And the, the data kind of also highlighted that if the kid is over six, you know, over or equal to six years old, uh, that rule can apply. And if they're less than or equal to three or less than three, then their leg is too small and you still might hit it. So it's, it's not certain. That's it. Oh, that's great. I mean, I think this is just like you alluded to, this is the type of stuff that we kind of, we, we know there's a danger. And when we do perk pinning, which I think we as pediatric orthopedic surgeons feel most comfortable with of all the, the kind of surgeons out there, we still need to to know for sure. And especially I know for myself teaching residents, you know, and, and I'm, I always, you know, pimp them, like, what are we worried about? You know, what's, what's the dangerous thing? And then when I ask them, well, where is it? And they just kind of point in a general direction. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. That's generally right there, you know, but I, I don't have anything evidence-based to tell them where it is. So I, I think this is great um, and a really handy tool that is easy to visualize just on fluoroscopy, just with the width of the physis. Have you, Dustin, ever seen a vascular injury from a CRPP? Uh, no, I haven't. Not in the distal femur. Uh, it's described uh, mostly in the in the adult literature, and honestly, after I did the data and the statistics and, and started to write the paper, I realized that there's a very similar paper in the adult literature, but it used landmarks that are more applicable in adults than kids. But there are papers on putting traction pins in, putting X fixes on, and, and then putting interlocks in where they describe either an outright damage to the vessel. Uh, in MIPO plating in the medial femur being four millimeters away from the artery or, you know, surgeons causing uh, pseudoaneurysms. So it's a legit concern. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, are you a retrograde pinner? Is this your preferred pin construct? I've done all of them and I, I have gripes with all of them. And then I, you know, we, we, I thought we were going to talk about the rock soon, but when I wrote the chapter for distal femur physeal pinning, I still couldn't recommend one. I think it's dealer's choice still. <laughs> Yeah. What about the other uh, co-hosts? What's your guys' preferred technique for this? I I like to go anti-grade. So I love this paper, basically. This is awesome. Congrats, Dustin, on just like a super useful JPO paper. This is perfect. Um, we've talked about similar papers using the physis to look at safe zones for the proximal humerus and the distal humerus on this show. And this is something that I think we've all probably thought about and we'll all probably use so I like to go anti-grade, and this this is something I will 100% keep in mind. I already copied the images from the PDF and pasted them in my little Evernote page to, to look at before these surgeries. And it's also super helpful for pets um, when you're doing transficeal screws. That's something that I worry about, especially in like really big legs where there's just so much soft tissue. And if you Google Hunter's Canal, there is like an absurd range of where illustrators have drawn the the artery from like right above the condyle to like halfway up the the femur. Um, so uh, I, I didn't feel like I had anything to go on from like my search of anatomy books and stuff like this. So this is really um, useful. Yeah, it's funny you say that I deleted talking about pets from the manuscript because I couldn't talk about it. The paper wasn't about pets. 
But one of the other impetus is impetus for I don't know how to pluralize impetus, but um, <laughs> one of the other causes of me writing the paper uh, was that I went to do pets. So I think the picture in the paper, I probably did retrograde and then went out the thigh and then left them there because uh, that's pretty easy. Then you don't have to skive off the metaphysis uh, going integrate. But I do pets the same way in the distal femur if I'm using screws. And I'd ask the rep for a non-threaded pin and he didn't have one in the set. And so I got very nervous <laughs> and said so that for that reason, this paper helps you as well. Yeah, I, I prefer, this is Craig, I prefer retrograde to insert. And I've left them out both distal to the knee through the joint and also proximal. I kind of lean towards leaving them out distal to the knee just because I find most of my pin issues come with excessive soft tissue. And above the knee, there's a ton of it muscles are contracting and moving around. I, I just feel like everything up there gets soupy. So that's, that's been my issue when I've done that the few times. So I leave them distal now. So you, you leave them out through the skin proximal when you've had now, those issues. Yeah. So like if you were to leave the pins out proximal, yeah. Right. With all the soft tissue moving around, yeah. you know, cause you've got centimeters of soft tissue there, even in the youngest kids. Yeah. I just, I just haven't liked that. And the hole, you know, their two millimeter hole ends up being yeah, you know, two and a half centimeters when it's all said yeah. and done. So, totally. Yeah. So yeah. I started, I started doing these retrograde and then cutting it deep to the skin and leaving it. But then you have to go back to the OR to take it out. And so the last few that I've done, I've left out, I've done retrograde still, but left out distal. And I would tell you the kid I saw back in clinic yesterday is the first one that he had enough wiggle there at the knee that he's got, again, you know, a centimeter hole and a little, a little bit of a wound by his knee, which I worry more about, you know, septic arthritis and that tracting and yeah. becoming a sinus or something. So that's the reason I've always left him out. I've done retrograde and cut them proximal is to not have that issue. And the first few I did that way, I didn't have an issue, but just this week, my first one, it honestly, it's kind of serendipitous that we're talking about this right now. Cause I even thought, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Cause I never had any issues cutting them and, and leaving them buried proximal and then just going back and taking them out. So it's interesting. Julia, what about you? Yeah, I've done them uh, both ways and I've hated it both ways. So um, I, I hate going back to take out pins. And so, I, I you know, I, I've buried them a couple times, but I, I think I hate that more than anything else. So I think it just, I sort of flip-flop based on my, what my last bad experience was. But to me, the septic arthritis risk, it, it's certainly real, but we live, we leave pins in the elbow all the time. Um and, and so I, that doesn't bother me, honestly, quite as much as how much they're going to wiggle around in the cast, uh, which at the knee, I feel like they move a bit more. So I don't know the, the right answer. I do really like the technique, though, for, for pets of, of um, being able to come retrograde and bring the pin out so that you're not skiving, because that's a, that's a hard thing to not skive, let alone if you're a resident or a fellow. But even if you've got 20 years of experience, I feel like it's, it's really hard to get that trajectory. So I think this is a really nice safeguard to, to know where we're aiming when we do these sorts of things. So um, great discussion there. And I do want to chat about rock. So we're going to put in a little bit of a plug, which I hope is okay for our, our listeners, but rock is the resident orthopedic core knowledge, um, which was kind of put together by AOS and I think is a really 
great thing for everybody to know about, not just residents. It's a great reference tool, and it's also something that really provides a education for residents in a much more interactive way than I think we've previously had. You know, I grew up on OrthoBullets, and OrthoBullets is great, and there's a lot of other resources out there, but uh, I'll kind of let Dustin explain Rock and uh, how that that experience, I think, of writing a chapter like that that has to have up-to-date information and images that are interactive, really, um, it taught me a lot. I wrote uh, the foot trauma portion of that. So, Dustin, I'll let you kind of chat about that and how the femur fracture part of this kind of spurred some of your other interests. Yeah, so M- Marty Herman and Dave Horn uh, were the section editors for the pediatric trauma section. You know, Marty asked me to help him with the, the lower extremities. So that's a Julia wrote probably one of the best <laughs> chapters on foot and ankle you can imagine. But the purpose was to give residents a reference similar to ortho bullets that they could reference quickly or they could sit down and really digest the details for and have hyperlinks to uh, link them to prior AOS videos, key figures that you thought were helpful from whether it was papers or chapters or whatever. And the AOS did a really good job. Julia can probably agree with me at all you needed to do is tell them this figure is very important. Please get the privileges. And, and then they put the whole website together. Certain chapters are long, certain chapters are short. Hopefully the authors kind of look through it. It was vetted, so uh, they, they invited authors. It was, it was all attendings. If a resident or a fellow was involved, an attending had their name on the chapter. And then as you went all the way up, there were some very uh, well-known people making sure that the chapters are ready for publication. So it's a good resource for residents. We were doing the lower extremity. I felt like distal femur and femoral shafts were the most were the, were the hard ones to write that I was, I was nervous about asking somebody to do all that work. So that's, that's how I ended up doing it. And then when we did the lit review, we realized that there hadn't been a JOS update since 2004. And so we basically turned around and wrote that too. <laughs> yeah. So I do recommend checking out the JOS uh, review chapter on femoral shaft fractures. I think it's a great um, resource for your trainees as well. Um, but I think what would be kind of fun there, there, so there is a table in there that says uh, the author's preferred treatment algorithm. Uh, Dustin, we are going to pimp you a little bit on that and see if that is actually your preferred algorithm. So I've got a couple like potentially controversial things uh, that I think would be fun to kind of get your take on. So for a eight-year-old uh, with a comminuted femoral shaft fracture, are you going to flex nail or are you going to submuscular plate? I'll probably rigid nail that. <laughs> okay, dang, I should have chosen seven. You got me on that one. So six or seven. If your choices are flex nails or, or submuscular plate, what's your choice? Uh, it honestly, it depends on how comminuted it is. But it's, if it's a long comminuted fracture and you can argue uh, for a while about how to define long when you talk about pediatric femur fractures. But I think if it's a long comminuted fracture, I'll probably submuscular or open plate it, depending on how difficult the reduction is. If it's shorter, then I'll, I'll still consider flex nailing it. Cool. Um, and so since you brought up the rigid nail thing, uh, what's your lower age limit for anagrade nail and lower age limit for retrograde nail? So the lowest age limit for an antegrade nail that's supported by any evidence is eight. A lot of the literature comes from pediatric femur fractures and some of the literature actually comes from Perthes literature. I always tell my residents and I told you I take adult call, I have adult partners. And so 
I don't think you should rigid nail every eight-year-old with a pediatric femur fracture. I think that's one important thing. And I was real careful when I wrote the paper not to make the age of rigid nails young always, you know, for that reason. But um, for retrograde, that is a difficult question to answer. There is no evidence I've heard people uh, at really, you know, good institutions talk about doing a retrograde nail and, you know, scientific studies of the growth plate suggest that it's okay. I'm not comfortable <laughs> going through the distal femur of a child. I would probably want at least two years of growth, you know, less than two years of growth remaining. I've never had to think about that clinically, I'll be honest. But if I had to, I would have a low threshold to do something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, that's totally cool. I, I, these are meant to be kind of thinking and a little bit edgy questions. So no need to hesitate on that. Um, let's see, take a, a different style, single leg spica. Do you single leg spica? And when do you single leg spica? Yeah, I, I single leg spica a lot more thanks to uh, Jack Flynn. We have to mention his name. He's all over the pediatric femur literature. I felt like I was basically quoting all the people that this class looks up to the whole paper, you know, but uh, I think single leg spica is great. Most kids four or under are going to have a low energy mechanism where there's a lot of periosteal stability. And as long as you recognize that you might need to take them back for a revision, maybe more often for his paper, a single leg spica should work. I think the key thing about the single leg spica that I've found in practice and that Jack Flynn says is that it's a lower burden of care. So the whole reason that we went to flex nails for the preschool age children, the four and five-year-olds was because it was a lower burden of care. But and now if you have a hip spica that's also a lower burden of care, <laughs> then you can still hip spica the, the four-year-olds. And my younger daughter's four years old. I can't imagine her being in a spike period, but if she was, I'd want her to walk. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, hey, Thanks. Dustin, this is, this is Craig. Um, as I understand it, uh, where you did fellowship, a single leg spike is a bit of a controversial uh, topic. Is that, is that still true? Is this something that you adopted in practice or, uh, uh, or you took out of fellowship? I personally don't remember talking about the controversy between double leg, one and a half leg or single legs in Dallas. I don't remember it doesn't mean that they haven't talked about it. I do know they're open to anything evidence-based, and I think the evidence at CHOP is pretty good. Well, well said. <laughs> Never mind. What, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I'm curious what, what uh, the rest of y'all do, though. I cannot remember the last time I put on a double leg spike in the absence of hip dysplasia, obviously, if I'm doing that. But for a, for a femur fracture, I honestly, I don't know that I ever have and have not actually ever had to revise. I purposely put them in extension and valgus because I'm expecting them to drift and have been very happy with single legs. Agreed. Single leg almost all the time. Waterproof. Yeah, for, I, I agree. I mean, you probably have less stability in the double, but in a trauma setting, you're expecting that. You're okay with that. It's different than DDH where you have to hold everything precisely. So I think you can definitely do a single leg and I, I do them for that indication. And I tell them that there's a, like a 50% chance I'm going to have to wedge it. And I've been surprised how rarely I have to wedge it. I, I thought starting practice, I'd be wedging these a lot more. I'll, I'll throw out a little, another edgy comment and say that I've now basically moved away from spike casting. So <laughs> I'm bracing almost exclusively now. And the, the advantage of that is that you don't have to wedge. You just adjust the brace. And they seem to do well. 
So hopefully we'll have some more availability of that out soon. Julia, what, what is your feeling on the pain control in the brace? I know the study that you and Lindsay presented last year or this year at POSNA didn't find a difference in pain. It's really hard to measure. I've been using the brace as well, thanks to you. Thank you. Um, but I do worry that the pain won't be as well controlled because the leg will be a little more mobile in the brace than in a, a cast. What do, you, what do you think? Is that a, a trade-off or do you think it's really the same pain level? Yeah, I agree with you. It's really hard to measure. I have not noticed, and again, this is completely anecdotal, you know, small sample size, but I cannot tell you that I've noticed that parents have complained of pain more in the brace than the spica, because I think if you really ask people, and I've been a little bit more, uh, I guess, detailed about my questioning because I'm interested in this now, you know, if you're, if you really ask parents how the first couple nights are when they're home, the kids are pretty miserable. And, you know, they're probably using some narcotics or some muscle relaxant, whatever you send them home with, right? They're, they're usually pretty painful the first couple nights. And then it starts to go f- get better from there. And usually it's nighttime that's the hardest even going forward from that. You know, they might be on just mm-hmm. Motrin or Tylenol during the day and then still needing some narcotic at nighttime. And I haven't noticed a huge difference between the two groups, but again, very hard to measure. Obviously, you're not getting a great pain scale rating from the kids. And I think you could do medication usage. That would be one good way to look at it. Um, but there's obviously a lot of literature out there that people use as much pain meds as you give them. And so I don't know that that's a great example either. So I, I think that's a great question. While we're talking about uh, anecdotal things regarding that fracture brace, Julia, do you feel like it is easier on the family at all? Is that the rationale for doing that instead of a spica? And and do you feel like your conversation with people support that? Or is it just that it's easier for the care team because we don't have to burn OR time to use it? Um, I think it's easier for the families. So obviously they don't have to go to the OR, which some places don't do the spike is in the OR. So I get that that's not always an issue for everybody, but it's uh, it's easy to place. It's easy to tell if there is a skin issue. We start changing the sock at a week. They can come out for baths, be somewhere between two and four weeks, depending on your comfort level. And then they go back in. I unlock the hip joint around the four-week mark so that the kid is fully walking with a normal gait. I mean, not completely normal, but more normal than in a spica cast. Let's put it that way. Uh, More normal than a spica cast around that four-week mark. And and so then I take the brace away at six weeks, and most kids just walk out of the office with a pretty pretty minimal limp compared to that little pirate walk that the post-spica kids do. Yeah, when I when I think of any brace that has hinges, I think of every elbow or knee brace that I that comes back into my clinic post op and how it's always twisted or loose or never on correctly and or locked and, or and I shudder whatever it's not supposed to be. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's always exactly what you don't want. Exactly. Yeah, and you can put we've we've experimented with putting glue on them so that they can't really unlock. Um, you can put Coban over them to keep them tight. I tell the parents to check all the screws once a day because I've also had some kids there where their siblings unlock the brace. They you can just wrap get it with a, fiberglass. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Wait, oh wait, that's a spiky cast. Um, no, but I the, these are all very valid valid points. This is not a perfect answer by any means. All right. Well, sorry to go off on a tangent there, but I appreciate the interest. 
I'm a, we drew you off. I'm a convert. Yeah. Thank you for the wisdom. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one more uh, femur question for you, Destin. Um, how do you treat femoral neck fractures in the pediatric population? Let's say eight, nine, 10 years old. Are you going to do cannulated screws? Or are you going to do a compression hip screw? Let's call it a basi cervical femoral neck fracture. Yeah, I'll probably do cannulated screws. Okay. And then what is your time to hardware removal for all of these devices that we've been talking about putting in children? I like to wait nine to 12 months. That data comes from a Dave Pedeswa's research where if you wait too long, it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, is that, that femoral neck with the cannulated screws always going in a spica cast for you? No. Honestly, the reason I said that, I was telling Julia I'm getting a lot of uh, experience with things we don't, you know, get to do a ton in kids. Since I take adult, you know, level one trauma call, we don't put them in any, anything. We let them walk. <laughs> yeah, very good point. Yeah, and I, and I don't spike a cast either. I think if, I kind of feel like if I have to spike a cast something, then my fixation's not good enough. And so if I'm really worried about it, I'll put a compression hip screw in it or some other more sturdy fixation. Yeah, I think I think the big difference there is you have a fixed angle construct if you've got a side plate and um that can maybe take that shear pressure more. So adults you're never putting in. I guess I guess you're doing it what for the valgus impacted femoral necks that don't have that shear, but then again, I think that's even falling by the wayside with some of the recent meta-analyses. They're kind of saying you should maybe even move towards primary hip arthroplasty, even those cases that we thought were just slam dunks, uh taking adult call. So I don't know. I still do cannulated screws quite often, but I think if you can get a fixed angle in and not ruin your reduction, or if you're getting a reduction and it's a very unstable thing, I, I feel safer with that at this point. Josh or Carter, do you have thoughts on that? Is this yeah, kind of I mean, interesting to me, to me, just the risk profile is so much different between an old person with a valgus impacted that you can convert to a hemi versus a kid who you mess it up and they've got a non-union or too much motion and they get AVN. I, to me, I don't, know that I've ever done cannulated screws unless it's like truly like a non-displaced incomplete fracture that I'm just kind of stabilizing but I reduce and fix I use a certain I I don't use a fixed angled construct in the sense of a single screw or a blade plate I use um, one of the other companies that has three fixed angled screws up top that you can get better diverse fixation you can leave it short of the physis it gives good solid fixed angled stability that then you don't have to back them up with a big spiky cast to immobilize them more because you get enough internal immobilization yeah I, I think i've done all these options and honestly don't have one that i'm, I'm really married to in a, a small kid even though it's sort of biomechanically disadvantageous um, i'm still okay doing three cannulated screws but I, I usually put it in a, a single leg hip spica. Honestly, when I think about it, it's probably just something that I picked up in fellowship and have continued to do. And then the bigger kid, like an adult, at least with a base of cervical, I would do like a DHS or, or a locking plate or something with a fixed angle or a side plate. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I just continue to love about this field is that, you know, we're talking about very different patients here. You know, this is like a, a seven-year-old with a basi cervical that weighs, you know, 50 pounds versus a uh, 16-year-old football player with a basi cervical versus a, you know, for, for those of you who take adult trauma call, a 77-year-old with a impacted femoral neck. So it's, it's pretty cool that we get to have all these different options. Keeps it interesting. All right. Now we're going to take a little break to hear from our sponsor. This month, the podcast is supported again by OrthoFix. 
As always, that sponsorship supports the positive mission, not the podcast directly. So other than the next minute, it has no impact on the content of the show. I am now pleased to be joined by Dr. David Padeswa from TSRH, where he is the Director of Limb Lengthening and Reconstruction. We're going to discuss the OrthoFix TrueLock system, which is their ring fixation system. Dr. Padeswa, I know you've been using the TrueLock system for your 20 years in practice, and now you're using the newest evolution, the TrueLock Evo system, which came out earlier this year and includes lots of radiolucent components to make imaging easier. What are some of your favorite cases to use this system for? This has really been a big step forward for us in the management of complex tibial trauma. Uh, We've had a great experience uh, in the sense of being able to manage patients quickly and efficiently uh, and really with uh, ease of application and even, you know, the reduction of the fractures. The radiolucency has helped with post-operative imaging. This frame is MRI conditional, uh, so obviously that comes into into play with the complex injured patient. We've also used this in the reconstruction environment as well for uh, tibial reconstructions, for uh, tumor setting. We've used it for uh, non-unions. So there really is a a wide uh, application for this frame in the pediatric, the adolescent, and the adult population. Great. Thank you, Dr. Padeswa. Thanks again to OrthoFix, and let's get back to the show. Great. So we'll move on to the lightning round. Um, Carter, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I might need to run to the OR, so perfect. Let me kick things off. All right, so article number one out of Jay Posner recently, just this month, out of the Shrine and Loyola in Chicago. And the title asks the question that I'm going to ask you guys, do forearm fracture characteristics and outcomes differ between obese and non-obese children? Dustin, what do you, what do you think? You know, I'm thinking when I see an obese child, I do worry about putting a cast on that can hold a reduction. I do have a low threshold to do a long arm cast in, a, in an arm that is a cylinder instead of a short arm, for, like a distal third forearm fracture. But also, I can't think of a time when it actually ended up changing the outcomes. So I think what you said, I, I totally agree. I have the same sentiment. And this paper suggests that uh, what you've noticed in your practice is accurate. They did compare the cast index between the overweight slash obese kids and the other kids. And um, there was no difference in the, the rate of getting a good cast index in those groups. And in both groups, having a good mm-hmm. cast index led to better maintenance of reduction. And then somewhat counterintuitively, I think, was that the overweight and obese kids did not have worse injuries. They actually had less angulation and were less likely to need a closed reduction before casting. Unclear why the author speculated maybe the soft tissue envelope dissipates the energy. It didn't seem like they actually had higher energy injuries. So doesn't quite solve the mystery or answer the question fully, but uh, shed some light on the the fracture patterns in overweight and obese kids and suggests something in that habitus might actually be protective. I feel like anytime I've been in the elbow and I've had issues with pins migrating or bending, it's it's been an obese child, but not, not the forearm. Yeah. And I, like we were talking about before with those sort of soupy pins, like yeah. distal femur, proximal humerus, definitely seen more of that in heavier kids. Uh, I've got an article called Characterizing Residual Skiffy Deformity, Utility of the 45-Degree Dunn View. This is from the WashU group in uh, November, December JPO. And their goal was just to compare the magnitude of the 
skiffy deformity um, measured by alpha angle, so decreased head neck offset uh, between two views, the 45 degree done and the frog lateral. I think this will be no surprise to you all since a 45 degree done shows an anterior lateral metaphyseal cam lesion better in FAI. It's also going to show the characteristic skiffy lesion better, and they found that to be true. And 88% of patients, that view shows maximal deformity. And I will admit when these skiffy kids come through my clinic, unless I'm planning on a reconstruction where I'm thinking about what I'm going to do, I'm just kind of ordering my routine pelvis radiographs, which is AP and frog. And so um, I, I would agree that I'm probably not seeing the maximum deformity. Um, I think a more interesting question to ask you all is, is there a certain degree of deformity that if you saw it, it would lead you to push like you need to do a reconstruction, a post-skiffy reconstruction, or is it always just symptom-based for you all? Because I'm, I'm primarily symptom-based right now. I don't believe in the prophylaxis, or I don't, I think we still have the burden of proof there. But um, I think anyone who is basing it off of a measurement, you got to get the right views and the right measurements. So I think this paper is helpful for that group. Dustin, you have uh, thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I'm symptom-based. You know, you kind of alluded that in Europe, I guess people here even stable skiffies they might considering doing a reduction like a modified donut. The only modified duns I've done are acute severe unstable skiffies. Not so conservative. I'm not, I won't consider doing it, but I'm conservative enough that that's my only indication, you know, in my hands at least. I think it's good to see the deformity, like you said, in clinic, if you're considering an osteochondroplasty, proximal femoral osteotomy, you see that huge cam lesion and the patient says, I have pain. You kind of look at it and think this isn't going away. And, we all know that when we counsel patients, sometimes we talk them into things and sometimes we decide to not talk them into things. And maybe it's helpful for us to see how bad the cam lesion is when we're deciding how bad their symptoms are. Yeah, great point. Josh? I Similar to you, I get this view if I'm considering surgery or thoughtful of surgery or they're coming to me to talk about surgery. So I think it does absolutely contribute to a surgical indication and discussion. If a patient has zero symptoms and it's more of a routine follow-up, I don't get this view. So again, that may be a result of my bias that if they're doing well and I don't see a huge um, deformity that is making me think that they are going to need a surgery, I just keep my eyes closed to it and don't go searching for it. That might be the wrong approach, but that's the approach that I have at the moment. I'm pretty similar. I do get this view routinely, uh, mostly because I fought the fight to uh, revise our hip x-ray protocol so that we don't just get the AP frog leg on everyone just because we're a children's hospital. And we actually get like an adolescent pelvis series with a done and a standing AP and false profiles and stuff like that. So we do at least get this, but I'm totally with you on symptoms. And I think I'm also with you what you're suggesting. I think in 10 years or 20 years at some point, we'll have the evidence and we'll be operating on them based on the deformity because we'll know that it's going to wreck the hip. But right now, if if they don't have symptoms, then uh, I'm not recommending surgery. Cool. Thoughts? Totally agree. Yeah. Same as you guys, symptoms. And I, I think there's so much more that goes into this decision for a reconstruction than what the what the x-ray looks like. It's a big surgery. So. Uh, next up is a JCO, Journal of Children's Orthopedics article out of the uh, Portland, Oregon Shrine by Dr. Jeremy Bauer, recent guest on the podcast. And it is entitled, The Incidence of Avascular Necrosis in Children with CP After Hip Containment Surgery. Um, so they looked at lots of kids who had had some combination of VDROs and pelvic osteotomies and found that about a quarter of them had some sort of radiographic evidence of AVN 
Um, they used a few classification systems, uh, the Buchholz and Ogden and Kalamshi. Basically, they found that any system they used, they found about a quarter of them had some evidence of AVN. It only happened in cases with a femoral procedure. And the only thing that was predictive of it was the Rymer's migration index. Um, GMFCS was not predictive of it. The big, the big issue with this paper is what is clinically significant. First of all, what's clinically significant in these um, very nuanced avian classifications? And second, what's clinically significant in this population? And we don't have an answer to that. So um, my question for you guys is, has anyone seen this avian after CP hip surgery? Yeah, I've seen I've seen what I prefer to call a growth disturbance rather than AVN. They just have a whole different meaning in my brain. Um, I've never seen one go on to like have collapse or have shape changes of the femur head or things that I would say even in an ambulatory functional kid that I would be worried about clinically. However, I mean I have seen you know small ossification changes and again what I would call a growth disturbance in these containment surgeries. Yeah, I've seen these x-rays pop up in, you know, interesting case studies and things from our group, just sort of as FYI kind of things. But again, to me, I totally agree with your point. Is it, is it a radiographic abnormality or is it AVN or is it a growth disturbance or what does that change on the x-ray actually mean? Um, and, and is it meaningful clinically? So I think this is a, this is a hard question and I do appreciate the interest in getting numbers. I just don't know how helpful this is yet for counseling. Yeah, I mean, it helps you it helps you not to freak out, right? I mean, I think if you know that you're going to see this in a quarter of patients, and really the key study would be to show two, four, five-year outcomes that the, the hip doesn't go on to collapse and these kids end up with a painful arthritic hip three years later because they go on to full head AVN, um, then it at least gives you some reassurance that even if you're seeing it 20 or 25% of the time, it's not um, maybe clinically significant. And with that, I'll take the next one. So so the keys, the keys to making any sort of um, grading system or score or or outcome base is having a good name for it. So I like this one. This one's called the CHIP score, the Children's Hip Predictive Score. I always thought that I need to come up with a hip scale so it can be the Holt hip score, um, like the Harris hip score and some other cleverly named, but I like the CHIP score, the Children's Hip Predictive Score. And this is a group out of Ireland who published in JPO, um, this month's JPO, the Children's Hip Predictive Score, which is a triage tool to help stratify the risk of hip dysplasia and particularly hip dislocation in in babies. And so essentially what they tried to do is, is there a way that we can use the information that you gather during a normal history and physical to then stratify and triage the risk of a baby having hip dysplasia? So, you know, Craig would argue that the only thing that matters is asymmetry and skin folds but not everyone has the same passion and love for thigh fold asymmetry as Craig. That's uh, that's dirty. And so what they did is looked at those sort of things and looked at the kind of typical things that you would get in a history and physical exam, no radiographs. So this is pre radiograph kids who should or shouldn't be referred for further workup by a, uh, by a specialist. So what do you guys think? Range of motion. So abduction, that was the second highest um, predictor. 
So decreased abduction is certainly a um, a high predictor. I'm just trying to find the odds ratios for you. So 2.4% odds ratio for hip dislocation. Leg length discrepancy. That's that's usually. Yeah, beautiful. So that's number one. So that's why you're our guest today because you got it spot <laughs> on. So leg length discrepancy is the number one, 9.4 um, odds ratio for hip dislocation. And the other one that they say is significant is syndromic. So anyone with, with a medical or other syndromic condition um, that you'd get based on a history is a 4.8 odds ratio. So those were the three main ones. What I didn't love about this scoring system is the numbers. So you have to have a good name for a good scoring system, but you also have to have a scoring system that makes sense. Um, the scores are like decimal points. So you get like 1.3 points for something and 3.2 points for something and five point something points for something. But in essence, if the score is above five, then the risk of a hip dislocation is, or the, the sensitivity is 78%. And if the score gets above 15, then the sensitivity is in the 90 plus percent. And so again, I think this is something, and they, they very much write this up as maybe in countries who have less access to specialized care and don't have as easy capabilities of getting x-rays or ultrasounds or whatever it might be, um, but something for a, a primary care provider, a pediatrician, someone in more of a rural setting. I think it's pretty good to kind of look in and give some weight and some substance to those things that we would typically ask for in a history and look for on a normal clinical exam. Yeah, I feel like if anybody even whispers DDH in our clinic, I'm getting an ultrasound. One of my favorite quotes from Tony Herring, he said, if they're in my clinic, that's a risk factor for DDH. <laughs> but I guess this could help people before they refer to us, right? Yeah, no, and that my thought exactly, because I, I, I don't know that I've ever not got an ultrasound indicated in my clinic, um, but that's really, and the authors point that out, that this is really geared towards maybe a lower access to care population to help to stratify on patients who should be sent. Is skin folds enough that they should get sent to the, the orthopedist, as Craig would argue? Whenever we start talking about screening for hips or spine, <laughs> I am just immediately uh, so sympathetic to all of our pediatrician colleagues who actually have to look at all these normal kids and somehow pick the abnormal ones out because if they miss one, they're blamed for everything. And if they pick one that's normal and send it to us, they're also blamed for that. So it's just such a thankless task. So if any pediatricians are out there listening, uh, we appreciate you. Yeah, it's a little bit the opposite for us. I remember when I was interviewing for pediatric orthopedics, people said, why do you want to go Pete's ortho? And I said, it's the only specialty or one of the only specialties where you can be a hero for telling somebody nothing's wrong with them. That's very true. Make a lot of happy parents if you tell them their kid is normal. Awesome. I think, Craig, do you have the last uh, one for I us? I do. Yes, I do. Um, and too bad Carter had to leave because it is a spine one. But this is uh, from this month's JPO from the Penn State group. Does subspecialty consultation before high-risk pediatric spine surgery decrease the incidence of complications? Um, and I'll just, I'll give it away. In this study, the way they set it up was they had a standardized protocol of consultants they would send patients to, GI, pulmonary, um, et cetera, anesthesia. Um, and in this study, uh, essentially 50% of the patients they indicated for their protocol actually followed through. The other 50% didn't, and those became their study groups. And in this study, there was no difference in their ultimate complications as graded by modified Flavindindosync. Um, but their conclusion is not that you shouldn't do it. They just point out that um, you need maybe a more discerning approach 
And that in this smaller study, it didn't really pan out that you have to feel like there is a laundry list of things and hoops you need to make your patients jump through, but a discerning approach is maybe warranted. Um, so my question to uh, to Dustin and Josh and Julie, if we can think of a, a comparable example for your for your uh, <laughs> patient population, my non spine practice. Yeah. yeah. What what do you guys do for your um, complicated spine surgeries and neuromuscular spine surgeries? Is what is your pre op protocol, Dustin? Uh, so for the neuromuscular scolies, the the high risk kids, I will look through their chart. I'll talk to the parents. I'll do my HPI, and if anything sparks concern then I'll refer to a subspecialist. I like what you said about the paper that it might not change their ultimate outcomes. I do think it improves my quality of care, showing that I'm thorough pre-op. It gives you another visit. It's really hard to sign kids up for spine surgery period. And uh, it's hard to develop the relationship with them that I feel like I need before we do the surgery. And so I like a reason to see them several times and this gives me one. Like It gives them time to think about me. But that's what I do. I look through their chart and I send them where I think they need to go. Yeah, I think this so, paper needs to be done for Chiaris without syrinxes and things like that. <laughs> for me, I have, well, I, I mean, I have a couple of built-in mechanisms where they have a screening questionnaire that the nursing does that then triggers whether they need to see our, you know, pre-anesthesia specialty group, which then also defers to cardiology or pulmonology or GI or other things. So that's kind of built in. And then just for me being in Iowa, where most kids who are getting really subspecialized care are coming to the University of Iowa, um, so many of these kids are getting care by the specialists at the university that I generally will just send their care providers a message and say, hey, they're having a spine surgery coming up, any other cardiology workup they need or pulmonary or whatever. And so it makes it relatively easy that my patient population is relatively confined to getting so much of their care in my health system that it makes it relatively easy for me to reach out to their providers. It sounds like we all have a somewhat discerning approach. I, I would say that mine's not dissimilar from y'all's. Chart check is the most important thing. Ask the family who they see regularly and touch base with them and yeah, I, I had this long protocol that I used uh, my prior practice about different things that would spark uh, me to seek out these consultations with like pulmonary, you know, if, you know, are they snoring and um, how many times they've been hospitalized last year and these things that just kind of put them on your radar as maybe a problem patient that maybe they don't see pulmonology, but maybe they should. And that's kind of internalized now where I don't have that sheet in front of me, but I've, I've developed my own kind of sense of when they need to go see these people and when they can be helpful. I think one of the questions that I would think of that might be more interesting to answer would be how many of the patients that are referred to subspecialists have an intervention performed by those subspecialists before their spine surgery? Like what is the intervention rate half. Uh, due to? So in it was this, half. In this paper of the 50% of their group that went um, about half of them had interventions and four of them received G tubes, two got interventions for sleep apnea, some nutritional optimization. So, I mean, there were things that were done to probably, they had to make these patients, in my opinion, better, especially all the nutritional stuff is, I think, very valuable. It just didn't pan out to make a difference in the end, but I think a larger, larger sample size and follow-up period, maybe, maybe it would. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, great. Okay. So Carter had to go pin an elbow, which sounds familiar to all of us. So I um, just wanted to thank you, Dustin, for joining us. Yeah, it's good seeing you guys. 
Yeah. Thanks, guys. I wish my class did this. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man. Bye, y'all.